you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. And I'm Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. On today's episode, Valerie pitched As Good As It Gets so that we can study empathy. This 1997 film was directed by James L. Brooks from an original screenplay that he wrote with Marcus Andrus. So, of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And we would really love it if you could give the show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page and scroll to the bottom. It's that simple. All right, Valerie, what have you got for the genres this week for As Good As It Gets? Well, I think the global genre is a worldview education story and the secondary genre is a courtship love story. What about you? Yeah, well, I think the global is exactly the same, worldview education, and the secondary genre is probably a love courtship story, but I'm not 100% convinced it's courtship. And I'll explain why I got to that conclusion a little bit later on. So how how did you go with empathy this week? Because this has got some really interesting characters in it. It's funny that before we get onto that, it's funny that you say that you're not sure it's a courtship love story because I'm not 100% convinced of it either. Although... That's what we're supposed to think it is. That's what we're supposed to accept Mm. it uh, as, in my opinion. I think it leans perhaps more toward obsession (laughs) or perhaps (laughs) codependency. And frankly, I personally find a romance between Melvin and Carol to be very hard to believe. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you said that because I find it really hard as well. I, oh, I'm, I'm just relieved. I thought it was just <laughs> me being contrary. <laughs> well, if it is, then we're both contrary. <laughs> I mean, Melanie, I don't know about you, but I am, I'm really tired of films and stories of any genre that ask us to accept without question romantic relationships between all men and young women. There is a 26-year age gap between Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt. Now, I'm no prude, but I'm tired of it, right? Like, that's dirty old man territory (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) It is Jack Nicholson. I was just (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we have been taught that this is acceptable. But if the tables are turned, you know, we end up with stories like The Graduate. Now I know there's Harold and Maud, but let's just stick that one in another in another category. <laughs> you know, so for anyone who is writing a courtship love story, here's a great way to innovate. Create a believable, acceptable romance between an older woman and a younger man where the point of the story is not the age gap. Anyway, on to this week's film and this season's topic. Lest I have a rant. <laughs> I chose As Good As It Gets because I think it's a great way to illustrate the idea that empathy and sympathy are not the same thing. In other words, the reader or audience 
doesn't have to like the main character. And Melvin is not a likable guy. But the reader or audience member has to relate to him somehow on some emotional level. And I am only going to focus on Melvin this week because otherwise this podcast episode would be three hours long. So this is the fifth episode of the season. And so far in the previous four episodes, I've already discussed a few different ways to create this emotional connection. So if you haven't heard those episodes yet, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. This week, I am introducing yet another way to generate empathy for a character. And it's a strategy I haven't yet discussed so far this season. Now, for some reason, writers seem fixated on this issue of likability. Melanie, I don't know about you, but I get a whole lot of questions about how to make a character likable. And I get an equal number of questions from writers who are concerned that people won't read their books because they know that their main character is not likable. And I want to say this very clearly, and I want everyone to pay attention. Forget about likability. Likeability is irrelevant. It's also really boring. Who wants to read a story about a nice person? We want to meet nice people in our real lives, but we don't want to read stories about them because they're boring. Readers and moviegoers use that term all the time though, right? They say, oh, I really like that character. Or I really love that character. And writers, for some reason, seem to have translated this use of the words like or love to mean that they need to create a character who is nice or inoffensive. In first-person narratives, they create protagonists who are sarcastic, and they think that this sarcasm passes for wit or humor or charm, side note, it does not, and think that somehow this is going to force a reader to like a character. So, First of all, sarcasm is not wit or humor or charm. If that is the only trick you have up your sleeve, you need to go back and do more study and research. And I say that with love in my heart. I really do. Because I don't want you to spend three years writing a novel with a sarcastic main character thinking that that is going to be an effective engine to propel your story forward. Second, when an audience says that they like or love a character... What they really mean is that they're fascinated by the character. Fascination is what we're after, not likability. Fascination comes from a deep understanding of character and humanity and humans and how we're wired, frankly. It's about creating characters with layers and dimensions. And within these layers and dimensions, there's something that catches and holds our attention. A properly constructed character with layer and dimension is inherently fascinating. Melvin Udall is fascinating. He's not nice. He is not a likable guy, but he sure is interesting. Okay, before we can even talk about empathizing with Melvin, we've got to look at how he is presented. The movie opens with Melvin shoving poor old Verdell, which is his neighbor's dog, down the garbage chute. Now, yes, this dog seems to have a habit of peeing in the hallway. And yes, we can all agree that that is unacceptable. But it doesn't justify putting a poor little dog down a garbage chute. An appropriate response would be to speak to Simon, who is the neighbor and dog owner. And if that doesn't work, take the matter to the condominium board or something along those lines. I, I find it kind of funny. 
In stories, we can accept all kinds of unspeakable cruelty to humans, but cruelty to animals or children is absolutely over the line. So the writers have chosen to have Melvin right off the bat do something that will automatically and immediately make us dislike this character. And in case we're somehow tempted to excuse his behavior, Melvin then treats us to a series of racist, homophobic, and anti-Semitic slurs. I mean, they just roll off his tongue. (laughs) And the audience is wondering, like, what kind of guy are we dealing with here? Who is this person? And he's he's quite a turnoff in those opening few minutes of the story. And just on the off chance that there is still someone in the audience who is unsure about how they should feel about Melvin, we get to see what the other characters in that world think about him and how they react to him. So way back in season two of this podcast, I talked about a concept called the hero's gift expressed. And I talked about this idea of looking at how the other characters in the story regard the main character. And I touched on it again last season when I was discussing the the idea of a consistent story reality. What I'm getting at here is that when we're reading a novel or we're watching a movie, we're looking to the other characters in the fictional world to give us a sense of who the protagonist is. Now we're doing other things too, but this is one of the things that we're doing. In As Good As It Gets, all of the other characters hate Melvin, all of them. They have no time for him. They don't want to interact with him. The old lady who lives down the hall, sweet old lady with the gray hair, she doesn't want to have anything to do with him. Simon, Frank, Carol, Melvin's therapist who's paid to listen to him, they don't want to have anything to do with them. The waitstaff at the restaurant, the restaurant owner, nobody likes Melvin. No one wants to talk to him or interact with him or be anywhere near him. So at the beginning of the story, Melvin is both unsympathetic and unempathetic, if if unempathetic is a word. I don't know if it's a word. But as the story unfolds, we begin to see that Melvin has real, genuine problems. He is aware of them, and he's tried to get help to overcome them, but so far he's been unsuccessful. His problems are controlling him, and we discover that hurtful things come out of his mouth before he knows it. He, He doesn't seem to have any ability to control it. And so what happens is that we begin to pity Melvin. Now, pity isn't empathy, but it is an emotion. It's a very strong emotion. And it's the beginning of an emotional connection with this particular protagonist and his journey. And by the way, this is an excellent film to watch if you want to better understand how characters are revealed. So here are just some of the ways that the filmmakers show the audience that there's more to Melvin than first meets the eye. So at three minutes, 45 seconds into the film, Melvin repeatedly locks and unlocks his front door and he's counting the turns. This is our first hint that something is genuinely wrong here. Yes, he's awful. He's just a mean person, but we're wondering if maybe there isn't, something else going on here. So what this whole locking of the door thing does is it keeps us from dismissing him entirely and it piques our curiosity about him. So it keeps us engaged with who he is and what is happening to him. At 13 minutes, 30 seconds, this is when Melvin quips that Carol's son 
doesn't sound like he has long to live. Now, this is the kind of thing that just tumbles out of his mouth. But when she reprimands him, he understands that what he has said is wrong. However, he isn't equipped to be able to apologize. Now, we have already seen Frank reprimand uh, Melvin. And in that case, Melvin didn't show any remorse at all. So his reaction to Carol is curious to us. It tips us off that he feels differently about Carol than he does about other people. He wants her approval. Now, this is very different for Melvin Udall because up to this point, he doesn't care what anybody thinks about him or seemingly, but Carol is different. So again, we have this unlikable character because we still don't like him at this point, but we're fascinated by him because there's stuff happening here. How can he be so mean and nasty to Frank and Simon? Simon especially is his neighbor who he has to live with and interact with repeatedly, but yet he cares what a waitress thinks. So we, we instinctively know there's something going on there. At 26 minutes, Melvin is the one who calls 911 when Simon has been attacked. Now, we don't know if it's to help Simon or simply protect his own property at this point, but he is the one who calls, and none of the other neighbors did. That little sweet little old gray-haired lady, she didn't call. And it also shows us that Melvin isn't a complete write-off. There is some hope. There is some goodness in there somewhere that he knows what the right thing to do is at least some of the time. So there's, you know, there's something there to work with. Now we already know that Melvin wants Carol's approval. And at 26 minutes, we understand why he loves her. This is what we find out here. We know he loves her because he asks her what is wrong with her son. He even asks what the son's name is. And when she describes that his son has asthma Uh, Melvin lies about how queasy and uncomfortable he feels at the description of um, Spencer's illness, but he doesn't want to insult her. What he wants to do is prolong the interaction with her. Now, this is way outside Melvin's wheelhouse. Like We haven't seen him do this with any other character. He's trying to get everybody else away from him as quickly as he possibly can, but he We know he wants Carol's approval. We know he wants to extend the interaction with her. She is worth the effort. And we find out later on toward the end of the movie that, yes, this is indeed the case because he confesses to her that she makes him want to be a better man. As we near the half hour mark, we see Melvin playing piano to soothe Verdell and to get Verdell, the little dog he threw down the chute, to try and get him to eat. So we see that Melvin's capable of caring, even if his version of caring is not what most of us would recognize as caring. So why does Melvin agree to look after Verdell when this is a dog he, up to this point, seems to hate? Well, he knows that Simon is seriously hurt and he has empathy for Simon. Now, yes, he is also afraid of Frank. Let's <laughs> let's not um, give Melvin too many kudos here. But for Melvin, who has a really hard time dealing with people, the writers have done a fascinating thing here because they've given him a dog to interact with. And he might just have a chance with a dog. 
At 33 minutes, we see Melvin smile for the first time, and it's because of Verdell. He's got Verdell tied up outside the restaurant. And, well, first we see Melvin changing tables so he can keep an eye on the dog. This is already a major shift because uh, the writers established very early on that Melvin always sits at the same table and considers it his table. When he sees children playing with Verdell, he smiles. Also in this uh, bit of the film, Melvin expresses concern for Carol's health and welfare. Now, he doesn't do it in a great way. He's very awkward about it. He he asks her what's going on with her because she looks 50. And just for the record, I do not think that looking 50 is an insult. <laughs> but I guess if you're 35 or whatever um, the waitress is supposed to be, uh, looking 15 years older than her age is an indication that maybe she's not looking after herself for some reason. Then we see Verdell mimicking Melvin walking over the lines in the sidewalk. And this is a huge moment because we actually hear Melvin articulate for the first time that he knows that he has problems and that he doesn't like these problems. He tells Verdell, don't be like me. Verdell has made Melvin happy. Yay, Verdell! Go dogs! We don't deserve dogs. Dogs are too good for us. Then just a couple of minutes later, uh, Simon has come back home from the hospital and Verdell has to go back home. And Melvin's heartbroken. And this is when we realize that Melvin is lonely. This is about 40 minutes in. And this is when our empathy kicks in. Because who among us has never had a moment where they have felt unloved and unlovable and where they haven't felt lonely? Verdell was like a therapy dog, right? He was helping Melvin come out of his shell and helping him interact with the, wor- with the world around him. When Verdell goes, all the light and the love in Melvin's life goes out the door with him. At 42 minutes, Melvin's now desperate for help. He goes to see his therapist who refuses to see him because he doesn't have an appointment. And it's revealed then that all these things that we've been wondering about Melvin, is there something genuinely awry here? At 42 minutes, it is revealed that he has obsessive compulsive disorder. As such, Melvin genuinely may not understand that his behavior or his way of thinking is problematic. So then the question that we have is, how much can he control? And this is also the point in the film when Melvin asks, what if this is as good as it gets? So he was doing fine, really, until Verdell came into his life and showed him that life could be so much more enjoyable. He wants more now, right? The financial and career success that he had been enjoying isn't enough anymore. Now, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, I could go all the way through the rest of the movie, picking out all of these little bits where Melvin's character is revealed, where our empathy deepens. But I think you catch my drift. Melvin is not a likable guy, and he's never going to be warm and fuzzy. They talk about this in the film. But he's a man with a real illness and who is coping the best way he knows how. And because he falls in love, he wants to be a better man. He'll always have his rough edges, but, you know, there just might be hope for him. It's because he wants to be better and he's trying to be the best he can be. 
that we empathize with him. Now, I don't like him, but I do pity him because he has pushed everyone away from him and he's lonely. I do respect him for trying to be better, whether or not he succeeds. And I do have empathy for him because we've all been lonely at one time or another in our lives. So it's important to remember as we're writing our stories that empathy is one aspect of character development or character revelation. To me, it's impossible to decouple them. You can't have one without the other. Uh, And this is true no matter which genre that you're writing in. If you remember nothing else from this episode, remember this. The reader or the audience doesn't care what is happening unless they care who it's happening to. This is why empathy is so important and why we need to understand what it is, what it isn't, and how to create it. Uh, Melanie, over to you. All right. So today I'm going to focus on genre and how that links to stakes, but also how they are not the answer to what the story has at stake, if that makes any sense whatsoever. But hopefully it'll become clear. <laughs> right. So last week I gave the following explanation about how stakes work, right? So the object of desire is what's at stake. And what happens through a story is a series of progressive complications that are risk events along the spectrum of possible events that will either move the character closer or further away from their object of desire. The progressive complications have likelihoods and consequences. So when we raise the stakes, what we really mean is that we increase the severity of the consequences of the complications and we increase the likelihood of those consequences impacting the character's ability to obtain their object of desire. So again, I'm testing this theory out this week and um, testing out that description. Now, I think Valerie and I have both agreed that there are two genres at play in the story and they are worldview education and a love courtship story. And we've spoken over the season about how genre provides writers with a list of expectations that we call conventions. So the genres also establish a value scale that key events in a story move along. Now, generally speaking, a love story um, moves along an emotional scale between intimacy at one end and hate masquerading as love at the other end. For a worldview story, the range extends from meaning to negatives masked as positives. Now, the value scale doesn't tell us what's really at stake for a character either because they are meaningless, I believe, without understanding what the character's objects of desires are. Now, I'm going to focus on the stakes for Melvin and what his objects of desire are in relation to the genres that we've identified. Now, so Melvin has a routine and he doesn't want to change He likes his routine, whether or not it's part of his compulsive order or not, that's what it is really difficult for him to change. So what's at stake for Melvin is changing his routine and changing his behavior. So this is a worldview education story 
So we also know that change is inevitable, right? (laughs) We know that he has to change in some way. And so the value scale ranges from meaning to to negatives, masters, positive. Now, in Melvin's case, his isolation, his rudeness and general treatment of people and animals is a negative master as a positive. So he believes his life is good and he wishes to maintain it. But we can see that his life is not so good. Right up front, we can see what Melvin needs, and that's human connection and messiness, and hence the love story. And that's how I think it fits in. So for Melvin, there are three main relationships that threaten the status quo of his life, and they are Vidal, Simon, and Carol. The meaning in Melvin's life increases with each connection he makes to these three characters. Each one also requires more and more sacrifice of Melvin's routine. So he must make more changes. So the personal sacrifices that he makes also move Melvin closer to a bigger reward. Everything that happens in as good as it gets moves Melvin away from his object of desire and moves him towards being a better person. What we see is Melvin getting what he needs and not necessarily getting what he wants. So he wants to avoid change, but he needs meaning in his life in the form of personal relationships. So the need links the two genres together. So when we have an internal genre story as the primary genre, the stakes tend to move away from the objects of desire. So instead, the internal change in the character, which is focused on how the character grows, is more about what's at stake for the character if they don't grow and if they don't change. So Fidel is there to show that Melvin has the capacity to change. But Melvin is still largely in charge of his own routine, even when he's looking after Videl. So next is Carol, and she is Melvin's waitress at his local cafe. And initially, she's the only one who can put up with him, so she becomes part of his routine. When she's absent, he helps her but mainly because it suits him and supports his object of desire, which is not to change. So he doesn't necessarily help Carol because she needs the help. Well, this is what I think anyway. It might vary slightly, um, very slightly from potentially what Valerie has just said. But eventually Melvin's conscious object of desire changes when he realises he's attracted to Carol And this is where what's at stake in the love story combines with the maturation story. Melvin must change and he must form connections with others in order for him to become intimate or establish an intimate relationship with Carol. So if he can't change, then he will not be capable of maintaining a relationship with Carol. And then there's Simon. So Simon is Melvin's greatest challenge and probably provides Melvin with the biggest opportunity to change. 
So why? Well, because it's Simon who is allowed to stay in Melvin's flat. So Simon moves into Melvin's personal space. No one else in the movie achieves what Simon achieves as a, as a person. And as I'm writing this part of my script, it occurred to me that the sacrifices that Melvin makes for Simon really upsets the balance of the love story. So allowing Simon to stay in his apartment is a huge change for Melvin. And like I said, it's probably the biggest sacrifice he makes in the movie. So not only is Simon in the apartment, but so is Fidel. And it's like the three of them have formed a pseudo family. Now, noting how much Melvin guards the exits and the entry into his apartment, I think this is a really big deal. And I think it also overshadows Melvin and Carol's budding romance. Anyway, that's just something to think about <laughs> in, the, in terms of the stakes and the changes that are made in the, in the movie. But that aside, Melvin has actually lost. And he's lost in terms of his object of desire, which was potentially not to change. So this, his object of desire has really been obliterated by the dog, the gay guy and the waitress. So Melvin's life has much more meaning, but only because he's been able to overcome his personal preferences and prejudice, which he didn't want to give up originally. So each character changes Melvin, but in different ways. Each character forces the change that Melvin must make so that it becomes more and more personal. So the change is forced by the characters, so it moves from pet to friend to romantic relationship. And it's really that graduated and really obvious to see in the story, even though some events are happening concurrently. The stakes are raised with each connection Melvin is forced to make, for not only because of the number of connections but because each one is more and more personal. The severity of the consequences increases as the movie progresses. And if we go back to what I'm calling the Simon conundrum and look at the consequences of Melvin sharing his apartment, then it seems like the most significant consequence of the whole movie. And this is the greatest point, I think, of intimacy in the love story. And I do think it's actually with Simon and not necessarily with Carol. So each relationship has several possible consequences and each one is made more likely than the previous. So what do I mean by likely? Well, if Melvin hadn't connected with Videl and been brokenhearted when Videl had to return to Simon, then it's unlikely that all the subsequent events could have occurred or would have occurred. The connection with the dog allows for the connection with Simon, which led to the road trip, the dinner, the fight and the relationship with Carol. So if we took Fidel out of the sequences of relationships, then the subsequent relationships would not have seemed, one, credible and two, not been made possible. So we see the cause and effect nature of the events that force Melvin to change. 
So quickly before I wrap up, I just want to look at the love triangle in this story (laughs) very quickly. So Melvin is threatened by the platonic relationship that develops between Simon and Carol, and he thinks that it's physical. Now, the only way this puts Melvin's desire to have a relationship at risk is because it's completely unreasonable logic. Um, as, As clueless as Melvin is about general social niceties, I don't think that this is the best choice of relationship conflict. But so, yes, it does drive Carol away. So the consequences of the accusation really result in in an outcome where he may lose Carol. But is that relationship or the physical relationship between Carol and Simon seriously the one thing or the first thing that comes to mind? I, I just find that really a little bit difficult even knowing Melvin's personality. Anyway, just something to think about, just just a thought that I had while I was watching the movie and analysing. So overall, there are three takeaways for us about the stakes in As Good As It Gets. The first is that the stakes in the global internal genre are driven by the opposite of the object of desire. Second, there is a very clear cause and effect path for raising the stakes, which is represented by the three key relationships in the movie. And third, the level of sacrifice for Melvin to change isn't as balanced as it potentially should be. And I think the sacrifice for Simon is greater than the sacrifice Melvin makes for Carol. All right, Valerie, so what are your action steps for this week? I want everyone to think about the emotions your main character inspires in your readers. Is it pity or respect or something else entirely? And how does that emotion open the door for empathy? All right. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we discuss The Hate You Give. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For access to writing templates and worksheets and more than 70 hours of training, Subscribe to Valerie's Inner Circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. And if you'd like to get my tips about books to help you read like a writer, visit me on Facebook and Instagram under Melanie Hill Author or find out more about me at melaniehill.com.au. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm -hmm.